between the combined effects of U.S. and Chinese tariffs and the economic fallout of COVID-19, company supply chains are facing historic challenges. Are those supply chains moving? The recently released Reshoring Index from Carney, a business consultancy, is trying to answer that question by analyzing trade flows. Their report showed a sharp decline in manufactured imports from China to the United States. We called up one of the report's authors, a partner at Carney, to explain more about the details. We reached Patrick Vandenbosch, where you'd expect, in his home office. All right, so Carney does every year something you guys call the Reshoring Index. So I figured first, if you could just give us a quick overview of what the Reshoring Index is and what kind of methodology it uses to come to its conclusions. Sure. Well, first of all, before we launched this Reshoring Index in 2014, pretty much everything you could find about Reshoring was uh, mostly anecdotal. It was based on surveys of executives. You'd hear and read about a handful of high-profile cases, but if you read what was said a little bit more closely, there was a lot of, we plan to do X, and over the next X years we'll do Y, and so on and so on. So we figured that rather than drawing conclusions based on surveys, we wanted to really separate all the hype from the reality and look at actual U.S. manufacturing and import data, as published by the government, and then see what was going on and translate that into a simple indicator that you can use to track the evolution of reshoring, and that became the reshoring index. Now, to calculate the index, the first thing we look at is the import of manufactured goods from those 14 Asian countries that have traditionally been the offshore trading partners. Those are China, Taiwan, Malaysia, India, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Hong Kong, Sri Lanka, and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And then once we know what they have imported in a given year, we compare that to what the U.S. domestic gross output of manufacturing goods is. In other words, what was made here in the U.S. And then to make sure that we have a dimensionless index and we factor out the effects of the movement of the overall economy that would lift them both up or down, we calculate the manufacturing import ratio. And that's simply the result of dividing the first number by the second. So the the reshoring index then looks at from one year to the next, how does this manufacturing import ratio move? Um, A positive number basically means that one year versus the next, there was more U.S. domestic movement in terms of what was being produced here uh, versus what came in from Asia. And so basically a positive number indicates for us more product being made here, therefore more um, more reshoring. Now, one thing though, the reason why we believe this is a good proxy is because it does actually look at the change year over year, and it is dimensionless, so it's only looking at relative differences uh, between the movement of both the imports and the domestic manufacturing uh, volume. It's also, it's also fairly robust. We've done variants of the index that corrected for changes in exchange rate and so on and so on didn't really change the direction of the index or even the index itself in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Now for 2019 when you do the math on those data what you'll see is that the reshoring index this year increased by 98 basis points which is significant compared to any other year we've ever done it. We've uh, only once had a decline of that magnitude in 2015. Everything else has been relatively minor compared to this kind of number. Um, and it's, it's primarily because the, the manufacturing import ratio basically dropped uh, from just below 
in 2018 to 12.1% in 2019. Okay, so that was the, so in in concrete terms that means essentially that essentially the US economy is importing less from those Asian economies but still manufacturing the same give or take output, is that correct? Correct, yes. Um, so basically if you interpret that MIR what it basically says is that for every dollar of U.S. domestic manufacturing gross, uh, gross output, there is roughly 12.1 cents of import from these 14 traditional uh, Asian offshoring mm-hmm. countries, right? Now, yeah. when you double-click on that number, there's two things. First of all, the numerator of that MIR, which is the sum of all the manufactured imports from Asia, and that significantly decreased uh, from $816 billion to 757 billion, so that's about 7% contraction, which is really, really significant. Uh, And it's almost exclusively driven by a collapse in imports from China. China's imports declined by 17%, and that's of course where the whole story around the trade war comes in. Um, Now on the denominator side, uh, as you said, U.S. manufacturing gross uh, output pretty much stayed flat, stayed close to the 6.3 trillion that it was last year. Um, But if you double click on that, you'll see that the average decline in U.S. manufactured goods for export was about 2%. So in other words, um, we've sort of lost about as much in export as we've gained from more domestic uh, sales, basically. Okay. Um, so, so overall, the picture is that it's mostly imports falling from China. Have imports from the other low-cost Asian countries, have they basically remained the same? Or, or what's the trend line specifically for the Asian countries excluding China for sending goods to the U.S.? They've all moved up a little bit, but Vietnam is, is uh, just like it was last year, pretty much the big winner here. Um, so we, we have this thing called the China Diversification Index, and we've been tracking this for a while because uh, it's been going on now for this movement of product coming out of China and moving to other uh, Asian countries has been going on for quite a few years. Um, Back when we started tracking this in 2013, China's portion of uh, that Asian import was around 68, 68.5%. And then it gradually declined uh, until around the end of 2017. It came down to about 66%. But then since the U.S.-China trade war, which started in early 18, as you'll remember, we've Mm -hmm. seen a much more rapid decline of that China diversification index. And in fact, we're now at the first, uh, fourth quarter of 2019, when we last calculated it, it had dropped down to 56%. That's, of course, still big compared to all the other Asian countries, but the trade war clearly has had its impact on China. Yeah, and that was that was going to be my next question was, and I don't know if this index is even something that can do it, but trying to disentangle how much of this diversification is a result of uh, external existing economic impacts like you know rising labor costs in China and how much is attributable to um, you know from tariffs from both the US and Chinese side do you have any insight or does the index have any insight into trying to disentangle what is I suppose a created economic problem like tariffs versus one that's just natural economic change as China's economy changes um, not from a mathematical mathematical perspective but if you look at what has happened, uh, ever since we started tracking it, so it's it's been uh, like I said fairly flat. You know, it's come down about two percent 
over a period of five years. And it's gone a little bit up in, in those five years as well, but then it came back down. So those were all typical impacts of what you could call, you know, the rising labor costs, which people are obviously uh, you know, um, paying more and more attention to. The occasional blip in the supply chain when uh, something like SARS hit or when there were um, issues with the West Coast ports being on strike or when Hanjin shipping went bankrupt. You can sort of see that always has had a little bit of an impact on thinking, uh, things coming directly from China, but it's really only now that we're seeing that significant tail off uh, of, you know, from 66 to 56 percent, basically, which equates to about 90 billion. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, on the manufacturing import ratio index, mm-hmm. um, do you think that gross manufacturing input fr- or output, sorry, from the U.S. would have been higher in 2019 if there were no trade war? Um, hard to tell. <laughs> mm. um, I, I think what we would have probably seen is um, a little bit of the same that we've seen in previous years, where you have some minor movements. Uh, that could either point to, uh oh, we're close to a tipping point, or um, you know, it's just we're just going to continue to buy a lot of stuff from Asia because it's cheap and the quality we've now all agreed on we can live with. Um, so the last three years, um, we've actually seen a continued sort of decline of uh, of the reshoring index, but it's been fairly minor. And it mm-hmm. was basically just in general, the economy doing well, we're getting more volume, it's easier to ramp up stuff in Asia than it would be to ramp up here, because here you have issues with availability of labor, old machine park, quite frankly, old labor force. Um, and so you couldn't quite keep pace with some of the economic uh, growth that we've seen in this country in the last few years. Um, so that could have probably continued. Um, the, the massive shift now, yeah, the trade war obviously had a lot to do with that because it just basically uh, put a wall in front of it and said, you can't come over this anymore for some products, right? So, mm-hmm, Right. Um, so in that case, I suppose, I, I, this is crystal ball gazing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think that the tariffs had remained at, you know, 2017 levels that you know, before we before the trade war really kicked off, how much of a, a diversification do you think you would still be seeing from companies away from China to these lower cost Asian economies? Um, well, as I said, the, the, the move from China to some of the other Asian countries has been going on for a while. So companies have always known that there, first of all, was risk associated with operating a long supply chain. Um, and they've typically addressed the risk with inventory uh, or airlifting, whatever. Um, and, you know, if you look at Still, the economics up until the start of this year, it's still sort of for most companies came down to, okay, well, we'll just hedge a little bit. We'll make sure that, you know, we might have a slight alternative for really the stuff that's high labor cost in Vietnam. But China still has the infrastructure. China still has the uh, ecosystem of suppliers. So, you know, let's, let's not move too drastically. That's what we saw up until the start of this year. And then, of course, um, COVID hit us. Um, the mm-hmm. trade, the trade war, actually, in a sense, was maybe a little bit of a, you know, although some companies really were hurt by it here in the U.S. as well, uh, was maybe a little bit of a, a blessing in disguise in a sense that it had uh, made companies more attuned to finding uh, temporarily or even on a permanent basis other suppliers in other parts and trying to figure out how to pass on tariffs and what have you. Um, but of course, you know. The, the trade war 
if, uh, however erratic it was and however difficult it was predict the duration, um, it really did feel like companies had some alternative they could play with. COVID suddenly sort of um, changed the game in that sense. And now I think we have reached a tipping point. So in addition to cost and risk being factored into the equation, this whole notion of resilience is now starting to come into big into play big time. Um, and all my clients are already looking at more ge geographic diversification, as well as building in redundancy and so on and so on. So again, stuff that is made in China for the big uh, for the big Chinese market will obviously the majority of that will still be made domestically. Um, but I think we can continue to expect to see a further drop in export to the U.S. And so the downward trend of that China diversification index is likely, likely to continue. The pace, I don't really know about that. I think um, it depends a little bit on how quickly viable alternatives will present themselves. And of course, that'll differ by industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like, I mean, you, you've sort of already answered the question. I mean, if if tariffs return to pre-17 levels, it seems like your assumption would be that companies are still going to be focusing on creating these resilient supply chains that are more spread out. And, and basically, they won't be returning to China. Is this what you're assuming, I would, say, I would guess? Yeah, I think, I think they are. They're not going to necessarily wholesale pull out of China. Like I said, the domestic market will still be served there for some products where it makes sense to have scale. Maybe those are kept there. But there's definitely going to be a, a moving of, of the pieces on the, on the chessboard, if you will. Uh, I mean, even companies that in the past maybe looked at coming back to the U.S. did that mostly from a more of a political or marketing reason are now going to definitely look at it with both eyes and figure out, okay, is there something, a portion of our portfolio we can make here just to have a little bit more diversification and not be vulnerable to, you know, either regional or in this case, global crises as much as we are today. Mm -hmm. It seems we've, we've moved from trade war crisis to COVID crisis is pretty much taken over it entirely. I mean, you don't even see too much news coverage of, of tariffs and trade war in, in comparison to the, the overwhelming focus on COVID. So I guess, do you have any advice for companies as they're dealing with the sort of dual fallout from higher tariffs and COVID-19 on their supply chains? Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> the tariffs, we're in an election year, right? So towards the end of the year, maybe all these tariffs cease to exist, who knows, or they get worse <laughs> next year. Uh, so that one is still very much uh, a dynamic of its own. Um, but if you look specifically at how do you deal with these these drastic, uh, really just convulsive changes we've seen here now around COVID, I think there are three things to look at. First is this resilience point that I mentioned earlier, uh, setting up supply chains that are more nimble, have more redundancy, which unfortunately also means are more expensive, um, so that you can pivot in response to any of these unexpected demands and disruptions, I think is going to be key to make sure that you continue to serve your customers, make revenue and obviously make profit. Um, I also think there's going to be a big push towards automation, everything from plant floor, warehouse operations to even back office functions. In fact, some of my clients are actually now struggling more to get invoices out, even though they can make and ship the product which seems like a little bit of an odd situation to be in, but yeah, yeah. unfortunately that's, that's what they're, the situation they're in. Um, and then a third point I think is companies now will have to step back a little bit and figure out how do we operate under, under all of these irreversible changes that we're already seeing. I mean, I don't think we're all going to go back to the store. 
we've now discovered online shopping and the convenience of it in a much bigger way than we've ever had before. Uh, Amazon activity and all the FedEx trucks on the road prove that here. Um, we've all discovered now that remote working can be just as, uh, as efficient. Um, these are things that are going to probably stick around after this. And how do you continue to operate under those changes? Uh, and then other things may just be fads, and it's important not to obviously bank too much on those. They may be things that have just people suddenly start to get interested in because they're bored, quite frankly, when they sit at home. <laughs> uh, and, you know, those are not the ones to, to bank all your chips on. But there are definitely a bunch of things that are going to be different at the outcome. And it's still hard to tell uh, what those all will be because um, I don't think it's it's anywhere near the end of it, quite frankly. So, um, yeah. But those I think those three things are, are really critical for companies to look at as, as they emerge from, from the fallout. China Business Review is a production of the U.S. China Business Council, and you can learn more about our work on our website at uschina.org. The show is also an audio companion to the digital magazine of the same name. You can read more articles about the U.S.-China relationships, business, and economic aspects at chinabusinessreview.com. If you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. It will help other people find it. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon.